Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to see all of these smiling faces here this morning. Well, as you can see up on the screen, we have a familiar quote. Now, this and the following screen will be changed next week, so you won't see this exact quote. And the verse or verses that are on the next screen, you also won't see next week, so this is the final time. Take a picture in your brain, if you will. <clears throat> because the emphasis here each month, I want you to get familiar with the message. And the message is, as the quote says, nothing of any eternal significance happens apart from prayer. The Bible says that in slightly different words, but this while it's not an exact quote from Scripture, it is absolutely a biblical principle. Can you say amen to that? And this is about the Bible itself. And next week there will be new passages, and each month we will rotate these. Passages about the power of God's Word, about God's Word speaking of itself. Here we go. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. <clears throat> the day of Pentecost. This is big stuff. Big stuff. But I'm going to try to keep it light and simple for you to Take it in this morning. The day of Pentecost. Let's pray quickly. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless this message. Help to minimize my mistakes. Help the people to see and hear Jesus, to hear your message, Father, and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the day of Pentecost. Gordon Brownville wrote a book called The Symbols of the Holy Spirit. And it tells about this great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, the first to discover the magnetic meridian of the North Pole and to discover the South Pole. On one of his trips, he took a homing pigeon, and when he had finally reached the top of the world, he opened the bird's cage and he set it free. Imagine the delight of Amundsen's wife back in Norway when she looked up from the doorway of her home and saw the pigeons circling in the sky above. No doubt she exclaimed, He's alive! My husband is still alive! And so it was when Jesus ascended into heaven. He was gone, but the disciples clung to his promise, the Father's promise, as Jesus earlier said, to send them the Holy Spirit. What joy then when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. The disciples had with them the continual reminder that Jesus was alive and victorious at the right hand of the Father. And this continues to be the Holy Spirit's message. So let's get into this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Who's they? You remember from the last chapter, the last sermon, 
we are talking about the believers. There's about 120 of them. There are now, once again, 12 apostles, because they have replaced Judas with Matthias. So there's about 120 believers here. And they were all together in one place. May have been the upper room. We don't know exactly what it is, where they were. Is it important? Well, maybe to some people, but I don't think it's that critical for this morning. So they were all together in one place. Verse 2, and suddenly, suddenly, what does that mean? What, why is it suddenly? Why does Dr. Luke put suddenly in here? They weren't expecting it. It was boom. It was happening. Suddenly, a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It doesn't say a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It was a noise of a violent rushing wind. We're just doing a little observation here. We'll get into a little deeper stuff perhaps as we go along. A noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. What does he mean came from heaven? How does he know it came from heaven? Well, clearly this was something supernatural. That's what this language is indicating. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now this had to be a pretty substantial house. Don't you think? It was the upper room, a room in the house was holding 120 people. A pretty substantial house. So this is, this is no slouchy thing going on here. This is supernatural. Okay, Pentecost. What's, I forgot to mention Pentecost. That's kind of important in this whole thing, don't you think? For those of you who don't know or who may have forgotten, what is the day of Pentecost? The day of Pentecost is one of three major feasts or festivals in Judaism. Pentecost means 50th. It is the New Testament name for the Feast of Weeks, noted in uh, Exodus chapter 34, or the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23. It was celebrated 50 days, or it began 50 days after the end of the Passover celebration. In post-exilic Judaism, the time period that we are speaking of in this passage, it also celebrated the giving of the law to Moses. And we'll get into that just a smidge more in next week's sermon, because that is relevant. There's a comparison, a reflection, the Old Testament antitype of what happens next week in next week's sermon. God's redemptive New Testament timetable <clears throat> is pictured in the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23. For you note takers, you can write that down. For you note takers, if you don't want to take notes in here, you can watch the YouTube video, put it on closed captioning, and you can write down the notes that you see in the closed captioning, the, the scripture references. So, the first great feast mentioned in that chapter is Passover. The killing of the Passover lamb pictured the death of Christ. Is everybody with me on that? Pictured the death of Christ. The ultimate Passover lamb. See 1 Corinthians 5-7. The second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, celebrated on the day after Passover. During that feast, an offering of the first fruits of grain, the waving of the sheaf, if you will, was made. That was when? That was on a Sunday. It was on a Sunday. 
Why is that relevant? Well, <clears throat> being on a Sunday, this would provide a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. Okay? And his resurrection is as the first fruit of the first one raised from the dead forevermore. The first fruits of us, first fruits of the coming harvest. Okay? How symbolic. Look, can you see the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament here? God has, by way of these festivals that he has decreed in the Old Testament, a long time before this, he has been foreshadowing the coming of these events that we're reading about here. These events now are about 1,990 years in our past. 1,990 years in our past. The events that we're reading of today, this Pentecost. Now I want you to think about that. It is not terribly unusual. I'm not about to go about naming dates or anything along that line. But we're coming up on about 2,000 years from that time. You think it's possible something's coming in the next 10 years? Well, we'll talk about that more as we go. But I just wanted to plant that thought in your mind. So, completing the, the cycle of the typical fulfillment of the feasts, the Spirit came on Pentecost as the first fruits of the full harvest of believers to come. God sent the Spirit on Pentecost, following the pattern of Leviticus 23. This was a sovereign act. This was not a response to any activity of men or women. This was a sovereign act of God, and the timing of it was planned a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ahead of time. Do you see that? Does that get you a little bit excited about the sovereignty, the providence, the power? God is not surprised. He is in control. He is absolutely in control. <clears throat> Suddenly, that, I already went through that, didn't I? <laughs> it's interesting, I think, here that they, were, that they were sitting. Okay, you would say, why is that interesting? <laughs> Well, the standard posture in that time for prayer was either standing or kneeling. Standing or kneeling. It doesn't mean it was mandated, but that was the standard way of doing it. So, they were, so what does it mean? They were just hanging out. They were just hanging out. And it happened. <laughs> Suddenly, just like that, the Holy Spirit was upon them. <clears throat> well, I want to mention, and we'll get into this a little bit more, there were three signs of the Spirit's coming. There was an audible sign, the sound of the rushing wind. In the verses to come, we're going to see the visual sign. Ears to hear, eyes to see. And there was a verbal sign. And we will get into that as well, a little bit. Not a ton. So, <clears throat> the wind, the fire, and the inspired speech were considered in Jewish tradition as a sign of God's presence. God is showing himself here. Wind is a sign of God's spirit, as a sign of God's spirit, is rooted linguistically in the fact that both the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma, like we get from pneumonia, 
mean either wind or spirit, depending on the context. In John 3, verse 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Does that make you think a little? Ezekiel had prophesied of the wind as the breath of God blowing over dry bones. Remember that? Remember that song? Ezekiel cried them, dry bones, Ezekiel cried them, dry bones. <laughs> I, I, I won't hurt you by trying to sing the rest of the song. I was tempted for a second. I was tempted. Ezekiel had prophesied of the wind as the breath of God, blowing over the dry bones in the valley of his vision and filling them with new life. This is in Ezekiel 37 for you note-takers. And it was this wind of God's Spirit that Judaism looked forward to as ushering in the final messianic age. Does that make you think? I spent a lot of time preparing this message, and this isn't about me, but I'm telling you, even now as I speak that, those words, I get goosebumps. Underneath this coat, I got goosebumps. You can't see them up here on my head, but I probably have them. <laughs> Verse 3 and 4, actually. We'll uh, read. You don't have to read this with me. Just follow along. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them. We'll stop right there for just a second. There's a whole bunch of tongues that look like tongues, it's a vision of these flickering flames that look like tongues. Then it says, distributing themselves, all of these tongues, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each of them above their heads. Their hair wasn't catching on fire, not that that would cause me a problem, maybe a little sunburn. A tongue rested on each of them. So it's individual and it's corporate. You understand what I'm saying? There's an individual experience going on here and there is a corporate experience going on here. There's about 120 of them there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak out. This miraculous experience connected with Pentecost was A, the filling of the Holy Spirit, followed by B, the speaking with other tongues. And up to now, the Spirit of God had been with the disciples, but now he took up his residence in them. This is a brand new thing. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was certainly around, even from the creation account. Remember, the Spirit hovered over the, over the formless deep. Well, in this particular case, oh, another example from the Old Testament, David, I think in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit came upon prophets and kings and others for certain times and periods for a particular task, or if they were anointed, 
symbol of oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Kings were often anointed. Prophets were anointed and so forth. But the Spirit did not dwell in them. You understand? Now this is something brand new. It's brand new as of about 1990 years ago. So Jesus said about this in John chapter 14, verse 17 to his disciples, quote, The Helper, with a capital H, is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Jesus is speaking forward to this day that we're reading about now. On the day of Pentecost, Believers were not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but they were filled with him as well. We are indwelt by God's Spirit the moment we are saved, but to be filled with the Spirit, we must, to be filled with the Spirit, we must study the Word, spend time in meditation and prayer, and live in obedience to the Lord. Spend time in meditation and prayer and live in obedience to the Lord. If the filling of the Spirit were automatically guaranteed today, and it is not, if the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for believers is in fact guaranteed. You are sealed, Scripture says. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you can see it in Acts, and I won't list every reference, where different prominent people in the book of Acts are filled again, and they're filled again, and they're filled again. And it keeps happening. If the filling of the Holy Spirit were automatically guaranteed, it would not be exhorted. And for you note takers, Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, capital S. Notice it's one or the other. Be drunk with wine or be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's clearly showing that the two are not happening at the same time. Okay? Being drunk with alcohol or other drugs brings a loss of self-control, a loss of inhibitions. I used to have a drill sergeant back in my Army days at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. We used to call it Fort Lost in the Woods. It wasn't far from the truth oftentimes. Used to have a drill sergeant, still remember him. His name was Dennis Adams, an Army Ranger had just come from spending 18 months in Panama. And he comes and he says, uh, Now you boys, we're all going to give you leave this weekend. And I know some of you are going to get filled up with that liquid stupidity. I want you to know you go doing something stupid, get you thrown in jail. I ain't coming to save you. And I'm going to make it hurt when you get back. So just remember, don't get filled up with liquid stupidity. I don't know if that's a good impersonation. It's been a long time, long time ago. But I never forgot that. Unfortunately, I went on to spend many years doing exactly what he warned against. By the grace of God, been delivered from that. So I want to draw the contrast here. 
Being drunk with alcohol or other drugs brings a loss of self-control, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is being under the Holy Spirit's control. How can you be under better control than being controlled by Holy God Himself? And that is who the Holy Spirit is. He is Holy God Himself. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost also formed believers into the church. This is the beginning of the church age. This is about us, ladies and gentlemen. 1990 years ago, the beginning of the church age began on the day of Pentecost. It formed believers into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12:13 says, "For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body." whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink one spirit. One spirit. In the unity, in the peace. Unity and peace. James 3, 5, and 6 speaks of the great power of tongues. But it does not speak very positively here. James said in verse 5 and 6, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest fire is set aflame by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body's parts as that which defies the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. The tongue can do great, mighty, contagious, contagion, conflagration, another word for fire, can do great evil and create great destruction. Now imagine if that same tongue, being on fire with the Holy Spirit of God, Can you imagine your same tongue under the full control and power of Almighty God, the power of Holy Spirit? Imagine that. You see it here, beginning in Acts chapter 2, and throughout this entire book, which is why I'm so excited about sharing with you this historical narrative. There's so much to learn from this. Let's move on to verse 5. Now there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. That is a phrase, by the way. It is not literally every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, what sound is that? The sound of the rushing, violent wind in the home. When this sound occurred, the crowd came together. And they're going, what's that? It's drawing attention. And the crowd came together and they were bewildered. And because each one of them was hearing them speak, who's them? The believers. Hearing them speak in his own language. His own language. Dialectos is the Greek word. Language. And they're hearing an earthly language. Luke only gives us a representative list of the countries from which many Jewish pilgrims came. He does not mention, and this is in the coming verses, 
I got ahead of myself here, turned my page a little too soon. One of those mistakes I was hoping God would keep me from doing. Lord, must have been part of your plan, right? So, these, these were Jews that were from all over the place. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not these who are speaking Galileans? Would help if I turned the screen on. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They were Galileans. Okay? And how is it that we hear them in our own language, dialectos, to which we were born? These were Jews that came from all over the place, and we'll see that list in a minute. But I want you to know that Galileans had difficulty pronouncing gutturals and had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. They were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being the word here used from the Expositor's Bible commentary is provincial, but another way of saying it is they were unsophisticated. You hear Northeasterners and Californians speak of people in flyover country as being unsophisticated. You know, farm boy, or speaking of people from the South and making fun of their Southern accents. Does that mean that they're less smart? No, not at all. But you see, Galileans weren't supposed to be able, with their inability to speak these foreign languages because of this notable, very persistent, it was very difficult for them to shake it off. In fact, it was so difficult, I'll give you an example. Remember when Peter was trying unsuccessfully to deny his association with Jesus at Jesus' trial? He was trying to deny, he was even swearing to try to deny that he was associated. Why? Because he was trying to save his own skin. He didn't want to be brought in. Fortunately, the Lord restored him. And we'll see him go to work here as a restored believer in Christ. But no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't hide his Galilean accent. It's the same here. Although, the Galileans were speaking in the native dialects of who? These folks. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia between the two rivers. Judea. We don't know why Judea is in the middle of this list, but that's neither here nor there. Cappadocia. It sounds to me like something I would be getting from Starbucks. I'll have a Cappadocia with light foam. <clears throat> Pontus and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were those who had, were Gentiles, who had become, had converted to the Jewish faith. Men had gotten circumcised, and they were, they'd become Jews. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God, they said. Well, how could they do that? The power of the Holy Spirit. So in this list, there's 15 of them. 15 in this list. But it, you should know that it's only a representative list. He's not giving the exhaustive the whole list. 
And it is believed by many scholars that essentially what he's giving is the list of all the nations from where Jews have been dispersed uh, in the past captivities so that there were large populations in some of these places of Jews that had been there for quite some time and were raised in these foreign tongues. And some that he does not mention uh, would, would include Syria, uh, many of the other Asia, Asian, excuse me, Asia Minor territories, Galatia, Caria, Lydia, Cilicia, and territories in Greece, Macedonia, Achaia, other parts of North Africa, and the island of Cyprus. This map might be rather difficult for you to see, but I want you to understand how far flung these people had come. There were some very devout men and women of Judaism who had come to Jerusalem for these feasts. First Passover, the, the Feast of the Loaves, Sheaf, whatever you want to call it, um, and of course Pentecost. So they came from all over the place. In fact, some of the local dialects would be Aramaic, Parthian, Iranian, Aramaic, of course Hebrew, numerous local Dialects included Phrygian, Pisidian, Lydian, Carian, Lycian, Celtic, Lyconian, and others. Coptic, Latin, Greek, Nabataean, which is a sort of Aramaic. And they were hearing it in their native tongue. How supernatural is that? Verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, the scoffers in the crowd, were jeering and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Drunk. That's where we're going to end it in the scriptures today. But I want you to make remembrance of this. What you're going to be seeing in the coming verses as we come into the next sermon next week is you're going to see the change in the apostles. Remember how they were cowering, I told of Peter, afraid at Jesus' trial, trying to save his own skin, if you will? You remember how they were cowering in the upper room after his crucifixion and before his resurrection? You remember all of that? Their confusion about what's going on with the kingdom of God. Is it now, Lord, that you'll be bringing back the kingdom of God? You'll know and you'll see the boldness, the difference it makes when the Holy Spirit is part of them, giving them knowledge, giving them boldness. You're going to see it. It's exciting to watch. It's exciting to read. And as I break that down for you in the coming weeks and months, I hope you understand that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, have this same power available to us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's why we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to pay attention. I want you to stay tuned. I want you to get excited. But I'm going to close. I'm going to close.
Eventually, I'm going to close. The miraculous does not inevitably and uniformly convince. You remember how Jesus performed all kinds of miracles in the Gospels? Yet, out of all of those miracles that Jesus was performing almost probably on a daily basis for three years, how many believers were there here in this upper room? 120. Don't believe that you have to do the miraculous. You do not. And even if you do the miraculous, even if God somehow gives you the ability, the ability to lay, on, lay hands on someone and heal them, or to speak in a foreign tongue which you have never studied, it does not mean that the people seeing and hearing that miracle are going to believe. However, he has called us to be his witnesses. And you will see in the very next sermon the power of a once fallen Peter restored, of a once fearful Peter now bold in speaking the gospel. So all of this that he's setting up here in verses 12 and 13 prepares the reader for Peter's sermon coming next week, which is the initial proclamation of the gospel message to a prepared people. The groundwork has been laid by God himself. And I close with this quote from Bill Bright. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with Christ. The Holy Spirit came to glorify who? Christ. Therefore, if I am filled with the Spirit, I am abiding in Christ. And if I am controlled and empowered by Christ, He will be walking around in my body, living his resurrection life in and through me. That applies to you as well. I want you to think about the power that is at your disposal. But being filled with the Holy Spirit involves being in prayer and in the Word of God and being saturated. Maybe another way of looking at it is baptized in the Word, baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want you to prepare. Be ready. It is by an act of your will that God allows you at this point to be filled. You already have the Holy Spirit in you if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But to be filled requires you submitting to the Holy Spirit. Submitting to reading the Word of God and praying to God. Having ongoing conversation with God. Prayer and in the Word. That, ladies and gentlemen, is all you have to do to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll know it. Have any of you known that experience? By show of hands, has anyone sensed, has anyone been used by God by the filling of the Holy Spirit? A period of time when you have felt and seen and heard and spoken as powered by the Holy Spirit, how things happen? 
It's not about you. I want to give you one final picture before we go. There's a story told of a man walking into a town and he sees this hand pump, and it's in an old time, long before our time, this hand pump of this big, vigorous, strong man pumping away at this hand pump, pumping all kinds of water that's flowing into troughs. And he's some distance away, but he can see this man is a big, powerful, strong, muscular dude. And so he's walking. He wants to get a closer look at this dude, right? Well, when he gets up close, he realizes this is not a man, but a wooden likeness of a man. And the man, because it's a wooden likeness, isn't the one doing the pumping. It's the power of the water moving the man. It looks like a man pumping water, but it's the power of the water flowing out of that pump that is causing the man to move. That, folks, is a picture of the Holy Spirit in your life. Rivers of living water flowing up from inside you. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't you want a piece of that? Can I get an amen? One more time with feeling. Amen. All right. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit, which you have delivered. Father, I know that you know every single person here by name and that you are calling people by name to be witnesses, just as we are reading about in Acts chapter 2 and in the weeks and months to come, to see what can be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to the possibility of yielding to your Holy Spirit. Bless these people as they go. Bless our prayer and praise that is to follow. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.